Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Seth Troxler starred in our latest Between the Beats film last week and among the many subjects raised during the shoot, he talked about the idea of fame in dance music. Jamie Jones, who's one of Troxler's longtime friends and sometime collaborators, could probably write a book on the subject. Okay, that's an exaggeration, but in the late 2000s, Jones' profile rose to meteoric levels. It all went crazy for him around the time of Don't You Remember the Future, his debut album. The record unintentionally wrote a blueprint for a type of house music that put bumping bass and feel-good samples centre stage. This was crystallised the following year when Jones and his good friend Lee Foss started Hot Natured, a record label that became known for both the style of music and a carefree attitude. By the time IRA readers voted Jones as the number one DJ of 2010, the Hot Creation sound was influencing a generation of producers. Jones and Foss embraced their status and turned their Hot Nature project into a full-blown stage show, scoring a top 40 UK single in the process. It's also important to recognise the impact that Ibiza has had on Jones' career. At this point, he's been playing on the island for over a decade, and when I met with him in London recently, he was fresh from another sellout season for his paradise party at DC10. Carnarvon you grow up in, right? Rather than Banger. Yeah, well, it was actually a place called Bontnewith, which in Welsh means new new bridge, I guess. So it was a couple of miles outside Carnarvon, and Carnarvon's 10 miles from Bangor. So I wonder if we could start by you telling us a little bit about the town and kind of what it was like to grow up there. Yeah, I mean, I was born in Southampton, and then my mother she decided she wanted to raise me in with her family in Wales, so took me up there on her own, and um, th- which was Anglesey, a place called Bimaris. I spent the first sort of three years of my life there, and then when she, you know, met someone and got married, we moved to Carnarvon. I guess the main difference, both Carnarvon and Bimaris have got castles in them. <laughs> the main difference is Bimaris is English spoken, and Carnarvon is predominantly Welsh speaking, first language. So yes, I guess some of my earliest memories is going to primary school in, in Bontnewydd, and uh, about three or four years old and obviously not being able to speak Welsh and all the kids in school speaking Welsh and just I remember my first few words in obviously at that age you pick it up very quickly but I just remember trying to say onions in Welsh which is nyonins I just remember going nyonins and not getting the word all um, getting the word all wrong, all wrong what's it like as a language to learn you know if you try and learn it as an adult it's it's so, so difficult. I mean, it's actually, funnily enough, in Peru, about a year and a half ago, whilst on an uh, ayahuasca retreat, I met this Welsh guy and he told me that he was, it was quite interesting because he'd um, travelled around Wales as, as a child with his father, learning or getting really into the history. And he, he told me that um, Welsh was the second oldest language in Europe, Basque being the first. So it's, you know, it's very different. It's completely, you know, obviously older than English, different alphabet, but Latin based. Do you still maintain some of the language skills? You remember any? It's I can speak because the, the Welsh we used to speak at school is kind of a kind of a slang kind of Welsh. Some English words, and I'm pretty good with that. The formal Welsh, like I, I have to speak to one of my friend's parents. It's a little tough, <laughs> especially after a few drinks. But yeah, I, I speak to one friend who lives in London, you know, regularly. But that's about it. Sometimes I'll, I'll switch the Welsh channel on on the Sky on quickly and just have a little listen, but. <laughs> So growing up in this area, do you remember if there was any sort of representation for what you now kind of recognise as club culture? Like, were the clubs, were the like 
DJs? Like, is this something that was on your radar as a young man? No, I mean, there was nothing. I was into club music through rave tapes that my cousin had brought to me, whether it was recordings of like Stu Allen on Key 103 from Manchester or, you know, as soon as I was able to, as soon as I got into it from the age of 13, 14, I was going into Bangor where there was a shop and they'd sell, you know, Fantasia rave tapes, Helter Skelter mixtapes, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember buying those. But as far as clubs in the area, there were definitely illegal raves going on in the quarries and stuff in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, but I was too young. I was like, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. Mm. So my first clubbing experiences was, I remember the, the town Carnarvon is full of pubs. There's 22 pubs in a very small town. So everyone just goes literally from pub to pub. And they let you in very young there, to be honest. I was going to them when I was about 15. But I remember that a, um, a club opened when I was about 16 called Paradox. You know, I used to have this little fake ID that we'd go into then. On Friday nights was two pounds 50 in and 50p for a drink so we'd get a double vodka mixed with an a hooch which is a, an alcohol pop as the mixer so you can imagine the state we used to get in but there were the dj used to play um you know we'd pester him all night to play like stardust or bob sinclair's gym tonic or you know the the, the only sort of club truth otherwise it was ymca or you know that kind of thing <laughs> I wanted to return to what you said about tape packs, um, because it seems like for uh, people of your generation getting into this music, they were like a really important gateway to new like sounds and styles. Why do you think they ended up becoming as important as, as they were? I think it was the best way for us to experience the rave. You know, we'd, we'd read Eternity magazine, you know, which is like a rave magazine, but then you'd see pictures of all these kids lining up to go to these big raves with these massive productions and it was like a dream to go to one of those but obviously being 13 years old living in north wales it wasn't really an option so you know you'd get the tape back and obviously they were from the rave that had been what a month before or a few weeks before i mean thinking back every tape was pretty much the same <laughs> you know the djs would play like six or seven of the same records on them but you'd always have your favorite and then you'd, you know you'd put it on your sony walkman and walk around your town with all your mates, each with their own Sony one man just walking around. <laughs> so, but good times though. I mean, I wonder if the experience that people were imagining from listening to those tape packs would actually kind of, you know, live up to that in reality. You know, yeah, it's it's interesting because you must spend you must spend so much time fantasizing about what it must be like to to attend. Absolutely, you know, I I like to think it did. You know, I mean. I fantasized about going to Ibiza for a good few years and it definitely lived up to my expectations. So at that age as well, when you go to something like that, it's everything's so fresh and, you know, you, you just mind's blown constantly. So, And in terms of access to music, were you able to like pick up 12 inch singles? Well, it was tough. I mean, you know, my earliest memories of trying to get music was actually spending probably about two years trying to create some kind of device that would go on top of my roof or out my window that would pick up any radio station other than Radio 1 <laughs> from Manchester or Liverpool, anything. But yeah, we had access to 12 inches. It was actually funny because I first got my first turntables when I was 15 and it was in the back of uh, Eternity magazine, there was always an advert. And obviously they had pictures of Technics, but I managed to persuade my mum to buy me some, the basic package, you know, the beginner's pack, for like 300 pounds or something. And it was at that point, I think I bought two hardcore vinyls around that time or if not before i had decks actually because there were two tunes i wanted i think it was a, a hardcore remix of you're as cold as ice <laughs> as soon as i got my decks and put them on i was like i don't even like this and i started buying you know house house music so they did sell they had you know they had good 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 selection of it was the you know it was the big tunes but it was cool you could buy albums and on vinyl and stuff it was cool were you turntables belt drive or direct drive oh, belt drive yeah <laughs> belt drive they were yeah, it was funny because I didn't even know, you know, I had no one, I didn't know anyone who's a DJ that had decks. So it took me, I got them, for a few records, I was like, I don't even know what to do here. Like, no one had told me about the pitch control, you know, cueing the record of nothing. So, but I heard um, something on Radio 1 and going back to Radio 1, you know, to be fair, even though it's the only station I could pick up, and, you know, it brought me a lot, you know, Pete Tong, I grew up on Pete Tong. So uh, I remember there was a, a segment on it about mixing and you know telling you what the pitch control and, and queuing up and i was like 
oh my god this is what you do and from that moment on i was just in there for hours but did you manage to figure it out just from that then just from the yeah there was yeah. a little i remember it was literally just you know like a segment like you know this is how you make your person you don't you keep the beginning the first beat on the record you know you count in i think actually carl cox had something a few years later that was kind of this tutorial on vinyl that would show you how to do it it was i guess it was something like that but but yeah, I mean, the belt drive thing, I belt drives and, but I always dreamed of having techniques and I went to the point, this is a bit embarrassing, but I cut out two techniques logos from a magazine and like Pritt stick them onto a bit of cardboard and then put them on my belt drive deck so I could like pretend I had some techniques. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really cute. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting though, to think back on that time, it seems almost inconceivable that there wouldn't be readily available information to tell you how to mix, but it just wasn't out there, was no. it? Well, you know, that was I was speaking to, about this with someone the other day. It's like, back then, what you were given, you, you know, it was what you were given. When you went to your local record store, what records were there, you know, what information. If you wanted to, if you had heard, if you'd heard a band play and you wanted to find information about them, what, there was nothing. You, if somebody gave them to you, or you went to a record store and you found more CDs or anything like that, you couldn't type in Daft Punk mm. into into Google and then find mixes or you know back catalogs or anything. It's literally it was a completely different world. And the same, you know, if you wanted to learn how to be a DJ, you couldn't go into Google saying how do you mix. It was it was just by chance that I heard that that night, and otherwise it probably would have taken me a lot longer. Were there sort of DJs in the early days that you kind of really looked to, maybe in terms of their style or their technique you know i got really into it was funny because i went from polar opposites from hardcore and drum and bass to like house u.s house music and i was really into like master work and even roger sanchez and people like that in the early in the late 90s straight away roger sanchez was my my first memory of being really into a dj because you know he'd obviously produced some big records and i remember when i went to ibiza for the first time in 98 you know i went to see him like three times i don't know whether it was because his mixing technique or anything i just liked his style got a bit tribally it wasn't too loads and loads of vocals but it had a good groove and yeah i liked the fact that he always used to play long sets as well so i guess i've always been a fan of that now, were you hustling quite early on to to get gigs like what was that process like for you <laughs> you know what's funny you should mention that because Definitely, yes. I, I remember, not hustling, but my first ever gig, I had to put on a party in my local uh, youth club kind of thing. My mum was selling sweets in like the little hole in the wall window. I was on the stage with a couple of mates. We had some balloons and one of my needles had broken. So I had one of my belt drive turntables, my little mixer, and we were mixing in between like rave tapes and vinyl. <laughs> so yeah, I, I guess, you know, I put on parties now, obviously, but I've been putting them on for a while. <laughs> I mean, is, um, is this a performance aspect of this something that you feel comes quite naturally to you? You know, I, I've never thought about it like that. I guess so, yeah, because, you know, it's what I do and I've been, I guess I've been doing it for long, but, you know, I've never thought about myself as wanting to perform or be, I've always been quite, you know, a shy and quite a reserved and a uh, person. I guess it's more just really loving playing music and I have always been able to see how playing music that people enjoy to them can change anyone's vibe and, you know, and their attitude towards anything. So, mm. What were some of the first examples of you kind of seeing this firsthand? Well, my first proper gig was in the student union in Bangor. And it was quite a cool club. They built a club there so, and they used to have, you know, Ministry of Sound used to come do tours there, Miss Money Pennies. That was our first proper gateway into actual clubbing in the area. And I used to work in a sports shop in Bangor and drive home quickly. Or my mum would pick me up and go straight back there for seven, seven o'clock. It would finish by 12. So, but we were there, there the whole time. I got offered a gig there because I'd made a mixtape, which I played in this sports shop on a Saturday afternoon. And one of the friends of the owner had heard the mix and said, oh, come and play. We'd, we're doing a party in the, in the student union. And so I turned up with my big box of like, 200 vinyls or something not completely over the top but there was techniques obviously i'd only ever mixed on belt drives three records in i couldn't mix you know couldn't mix a cake mix you know i was just like absolutely atrocious massive train wrecking every record luckily my friend who had actually had got a pair of new mac direct drives was with me and he just took over because everyone was looking up at me like what is going on here so that was my first experience of 
of the negative side of playing bad music but playing good music from any you know just house parties i'd always turn up with them with the right mix to put on or a good mix to put on in our first sort of 14 year old getting drunk house parties yeah i mean i'm assuming around that time like the idea of making a mixtape was like absolutely the currency to get gigs right making the perfect mix you know this idea yeah i mean you know back then i didn't even think about getting gigs because it was just making mixtapes to listen to on your walkman or when i was working in the shop i don't know if i ever got a gig from a mixtape by the time i started you know i think cds came along but the capability to make cds came along a bit later than that and i definitely got going in this world by making a mix CD and somebody hearing it. So eventually you moved to London to study, that's right, which was kind of what sort of time? That was 98. 98. Yeah. I wonder if you talk a little bit about how you found the scene at the time and if you'd had sort of experiences in London leading up to that, like just kind of paint a picture for us. Absolutely, yeah. My only real experience in London, this is where actually going to some really kind of corny things back then or UK word naff <laughs> is the right word for that but I I actually somehow managed to find myself I, I bought tickets for a New Year's Eve gig at the time I was really into speed garage so and it was like 97 96 97 I bought tickets to an event a speed garage rave I can't remember it was called sun something and uh, we'd got the tickets through the post in Wales and they'd have like you know little pictures of like champagne but corks popping and stuff and then uh, it was huge written on the tickets 21s and over only i wasn't even 18 so it was like strict strictly so we were like oh you know what we might not get in so I had to send the tickets back and the only thing that was kind of going that was 18 that we could find was a rave at the bricks in brixton with basement jacks playing for five hours now i just heard of the basement jacks so i didn't wasn't really you know it was it was a little, it was before any of the big hits. I think it was before Red Alert, to be honest. But I had heard of them in a magazine or something. So I was like, you know, let's go there. We went there, staying in my uncle's house who lived in London at the time. And uh, Tommy Hilfiger jeans, like a velvety jelly bean shirt and uh, some pod, shiny pod shoes, <laughs> queued up, got in. And it was wicked. It was such a organic rave there was like you know massive sound system a few bikes that probably were in the place that had been thrown on top of the speakers even the member Felix from the basement like sitting on the steps near me just like smoking a fag and at the time I didn't realize what it was and how what it would become but you know it was it was a brilliant night and that was my first London clubbing experience yeah and you were going to Fabric I guess when it opened Fabric opened the year I went came moved on to go to university and I remember going I think the third week and um I'm not actually that much of a blagger, but I remember arriving and we were used to being in Wales, you know, going out. As you see people up north, I'm sure everyone can relate to this, girls with no jackets on. In Wales, you know, it's the same. So all the guys, you just got in a shirt or a t-shirt because you're going from pub to pub. Then you, there's no way to put your coat and it's boiling if you were in a coat inside a pub. So we were just from that mentality. So me and my best friend who was studying in Birmingham, he'd come down. It was actually the week of my birthday or the week after. We went to Fabric, saw a huge, 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 huge queue. And I like, oh, it's too cold and can't queue up at that. So I joined a guestless queue, got to the front in about five minutes. And I just had a sneak peek of the guest list and saw Chris C plus one. And I was like, yeah, Chris Carter, Chris C plus one. In we went, VIP free entry. <laughs> 18 years, just turned 18, I think I had. So, um, yeah, the, brilliant. Um, <laughs> was like the music they were pushing at the club on your radar? You know what? There were some DJs, like I remember the person I wanted to see on the night was Dave Angel. And I remember going there, you know, and back then I hadn't experimented with any drugs or anything. And like, I remember just being on the dance floor all night. I think somebody gave me a token of spliff or something. And I just remember, and I normally smoke weed, but I was sober, dancing for hours, just right at the front, proper raving. It's brilliant. So I guess Ibiza would have been looming quite large in your mind around that time. What was it that kind of attracted you to the idea of Ibiza? Because I guess you'd been there on holiday around that time. Had you always had in mind that you wanted to maybe go and do summer seasons and just kind of try your hand at that? I'd not even really thought about going for the season, to be honest. I'd gone there on holiday for a week in 98, two weeks in 99 which was amazing and you know, obviously knew I was wanting to go back but didn't really think it was thought about it really and then a friend of my best friend had said he was going to go there and try. We kind of went there on a two-week holiday on a whim and ended up staying. 
as I hear a lot of people still yeah, that's do. Kind of the thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and that was my you know my first summer in, in uni in London. So yeah, I just stayed out there. And Did you take to... records with you? Were you? Maybe trying to get gigs. Or... Yeah, I took my big silver box of. I don't know if anyone remembers these pro boxes, which were like the rounded corner record boxes, which were like kind of the top. I guess they're like the rimovers of today or something. I couldn't afford that. So I had like the, the basic big square hundred record box, which was so heavy, so heavy. And I took that with me, yeah, and um, on the hope. So what were you doing in your first season? My first job was flyering for the first part I was there. I think my first job was for Judgment Sundays flyering. And then I think I got a job for Pasha a bit later on. But I was the worst flyer in the world. I have to wake up at God knows what time after being out all night, which I was out every night back then, and go to these PR staff meetings and find out that I had three people had taken my flyer and got tickets and I'd get about 30p or something. I was like, oh, what am I going to eat today? So yeah, it was, it wasn't, I wasn't successful at that part of the, the, this industry at all. <laughs> and what was that lifestyle like for you? You know, it's just like, you don't really eat, you don't really sleep, you just party and survive somehow on very day to day on the bread line. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, a, a two pound English breakfast was like, a no-boo for me basically or a super super treat <laughs> let's put it like that <laughs> I mean did you manage to put down roots in that first season that would kind of later lead you to getting gigs and um and those sorts of things yeah a little bit it's people you meet I think the first year the most important thing I got out of my first year or two years in Ibiza was really coming out of my shell as a person I remember being there and I was quite young I was only 19 and being out on the streets and everyone's meeting each other and I was always kind of like a a bit of a shy person. I wouldn't really, I was never able to just start conversations with people randomly. And I just remember being out in San Antonio and watching everyone chat and, and how people, the most popular and the most kind of, you know, the people that get the most guests and stuff, how their vibe was. And I realized that I had to really, you know, instead of thinking about a joke, but being too shy to say it, just say it, you know, I'm coming out of my shell. And I think that, that was, but the most important thing I got from more than the music and DJ side of things was just really coming out of my shell as a as a person and really realizing that you know I I could be funnier I could be outgoing and then you know the people that you meet through being a bit more outgoing well they're still my friends today mm. you know I mean would you say it was a beef the way you really started to establish yourself as the DJ I mean when do you think things De started to get serious for you definitely it, you know it's all pr kind of down to one person really our name's Rosanna Maldonado and we used to work for Home which was We Love Darren Hughes's thing before before they started We Love they used to have Sundays at Space which went on for 22 hours you know every week and she worked for them and I remember looking at her as it's like you know really cool kind of hot older kind of you know in it crowd person and she didn't know who I was and I, you know, you knew who they were kind of thing. And the year after, through a friend, mutual friend, Simon Browning, I, I'd made a mix CD. And at the time I was going to Plastic People a lot. I was into Broken Beat, like the early stage. I think Phonica had just opened on Berwick Street. And, um, you know, it was, it was the early days of the sound coming over from Berlin, a little bit more Electro House before it became noisy Electro House when it was, you know, just kind of sort of, funk rhythm bass lines with, so with Hash Beats, T.F. Schwartz, the first Get Physical releases, you know, as, as big examples. So it was, uh, I made this mix CD, it was called Sleazy Soul. The first half it was broken beat, like a lot of, you know, the stuff that Dixon and them were playing back then, Sona Collective, Jazzanova kind of things. And then the second half was into this more kind of, you know, this early days of Electro House. And it was cool because I don't think anyone else was really playing that in Ibiza then at all. And she'd obviously heard this mix CD and, you know, decided she was going to book me to play at the Key Club in London. And I got some gigs from there and asked me to be a resident the year after in Manumissions Music Box, which was the side room with, with all the glass. And they were so forward thinking that they were the first people to bring like Damien Lazarus, Dan Ganassia, T.F. Schwartz, Mandy, Captain Comatoz, Ivan Smag to Ibiza. And you know, I, I got to be the resident the year after. Uh, how was your sound developing around that time? Were you kind of influenced by some of the people that you mentioned? Absolutely, you know, definitely. That was the thing. At the same time, there was a real big movement happening in East London. You know, it was Shoreditch, 
not its very early stages, but its early stages of being uh, having a Sunday scene and a musical Sunday scene, not just people walking from pub to pub getting drunk. There was Bones and Ramsey were DJing at the 333 upstairs. And, you know, it was, they was putting on Catch-22 and the early days of any kind of, anyone doing a party in a Russian club. There was a club called Dovebridge, which I still think is the best club ever in London, which is Dovebridge Studios under, under the bridge in Kingston Road, which was just a strip LED rope light and just really sweaty but it was there every Sunday it was really influential to me back then I mean were you managing to sort of establish yourself in London as well were you kind of like simultaneously building a reputation in London as well as Ibiza yeah it was about that time that I I, you know thank thank you to like, you know Rosanna and, and the whole money mission thing I had met Dan Ganassia and Damien and everyone you know, and then I'd gone to see Damon play his first, I think he just started Crosstown Rebels around that time. Cause he obviously he'd been massively influenced by what he was doing at City Rockers before that. So I met those people, hung out with them in Ibiza. Like they always say, it's not just, you know, what you can do, it is who you know. That was a big part of me getting started. You know, I, w I had, was able to hang out with those guys. I remember I had a warehouse on um, Kingston Road just opposite the fire station and we used to have huge parties there on a Monday morning because we were all, it was a huge Sunday scene. Everyone used to go out, so everyone cool, what I thought was cool, would go out on Sunday nights. So um, we'd go out, have massive parties on Mondays and I remember Mr. C came around for the first time. I was like, wow, Mr. C's in my house. And he was like rapping on the mic in my house. There was only like 20 of us there and it was, you know, it was brilliant, brilliant days. But yeah, I had direct access to those guys. And so when I first started making music, I was able to give it to them, you know, so. Mm. I mean, did you feel as though at the time it was kind of a new thing for London? You know, you're talking about the parties being on Sundays. It felt like the music was obviously different and maybe even the attitude was different. Like, did it feel like something kind of fresh and new? It did. It felt very Ibiza and DC10 and all that kind of thing. It felt was going on. Because I remember the first Sunday party I ever went to with my friend Dion, you know, we would obviously go to DC10 from We've been going since 2000 and we were looking. This was a little bit before this whole Sunday scene, actually. A couple of years, like probably 2001, too. And we, you know, we really wanted to be around, you know, like the whole Italian vibe and everything. So there was a party in the cross. Oh, God, the name of it now escapes me. But it was DJ Ralph from Italy who was a resident. Rob Mello used to play regularly in the middle room along with like DJ Cosmo. And it was the first time I heard Metro Area, that kind of sound, you know, in the middle room. And it was all going on on Sunday nights. And it was cool because the crowd was cooler. It was obviously people who don't have to go to work on Monday. It was mm -hmm. that kind of kind of vibe, you know. And yeah, that was definitely, it was definitely felt like a begin. That was the beginning of the Sunday movement for me. I mean, none of us lived in London. I was studying a bit outside of London and like, on like zone four or something. And my friends lived in Kent, so we had nowhere to stay. So what we'd do... And I, w I was working part-time through uni in Victoria, some career company um, on the phone. So what we do is we go to the Holiday Inn on Old Street. We couldn't afford rooms. So we'd, we'd literally go in and sleep in the corridors on the stairwell for three hours before we had to go to work. <laughs> did you get caught ever? <laughs> we never got caught. We did it about 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. Mm. Tell us a little bit about the tea bar because as a venture, as a venue, it's been closed for a few years now. But like, certainly thinking back to that time, it does it does feel like a very important venue for the development of the scene we're talking. And you yeah. played there a lot, obviously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The tea bar post the whole Sunday night thing, which was going on, which like was you know the, the Russian clubs and Catch Twenty Two. There was kind of a, a bit of a gap. I think it was maybe around the time that because we used always used to go to um, the Royal Oak. I don't know if anyone's ever you know heard of that, but it was it used to, the Royal Oak on Columbia Road used to be a really naughty after hours because you could start drinking there at eight a.m. because of the flower market. So it was full of like cool but weird people, lots of transvestites and kind of mixed crowd, but everyone who was up basically drinking, listening to a jukebox. And then they, they put a DJ booth in there. or It became different, but and then it became a gastropub. But around that time, you know, the tea bus got going and it kind of got going with some after hours for Fabric with Ricardo playing stuff before. And then, you know, Matthew Stiles, Dave Congrave, Rob Mello and I started this thing called Digger on Rave, which was every week, you know. It was around the time that I'd really been massively influenced by, which was probably the most influence I've ever been by a DJ, was the first time Ricardo Villalobos ever blew my mind, which was on Amnesia Terrace in 2005. I think it was the Monday after Sona. 
yeah, so we come back and it, obviously that whole thing, Ricardo was kind of becoming this legend to us then. And so we, I was really influenced by the fact that I had to play every week with Matthew Styles, Romello and Dave Congrave, who were older than me and, you know, had a lot more bigger record collections and just really trying to really start digging deep for, you know, old house and techno and just really building up a back catalogue of, of interesting records. And that, that was really important for me. What was it for you personally that really like endeared you to what Ricardo was doing? Basically, we're in um, Amnesia. It was back when the, the DJ booth was in on the side of the room rather than at the, the back on the terrace. I remember being on the dance floor, obviously a lot of crew were there. It was Monday after Sona, which is always a popular one. And what happened was before then, most people... Yeah, I'd been to, to Cocoon before, but I'd always been in the main room to, to Sven and it was like 135 plus techno. Richie Horton had a shaved head and glasses and he was doing his decks and effects in the 909. And that was cool. So no one had ever really gone on the terrace. I think, you know, it was quite empty. And then this one particular week, Manu Mission were having a dispute with Privilege. So they were open seven, eight weeks late. So all the DC-10 crew, all that kind of the, the Italian people, everything was going, everyone was like, let's go to Cocoon after DC-10 closed. Everyone was there. Ricardo was playing and the sun come up and I realized that no one had spoken to each other for about three hours. And I remember I was with Ed Cartwright, who's Damien Lazarus's best friend and I'm a hot nature manager. And I was with Damien Lazarus and we were like, I tapped Damien on the shoulder and looked at him and went, what's going on? Like, what is going on here? This is ridiculous. And no one had spoken for like, it gives me goose people's thinking about it. No one had spoken for three hours and it was just like 10 minutes of like weird pianos and then just like an amazing like house record. And then it was the first time I'd ever heard Matthew Johnson decompression. I think he even played it twice and it was just like the best thing I'd ever heard in my life, you know? So and it was the first time I'd realized that you could like, you could really play really old records, old house records. And like, I kind of knew it before, but I hadn't really thought about what people were playing. And I'd always just gone and bought the new records from the store, you know, what was out there and never really. So and after that week, I went on Juno and listened to everything in like Minimal Tech and Deep House in their whole back catalog, picked out about 800 records and slowly sort of saved up and bought 100 by time. And, and you know, that was that. <laughs> Do you think a little bit like, you'd maybe been conditioned to just be checking in on the new stuff because I, I think for me personally someone who also listened to radio one a lot growing mm. up it was like almost once a record was released it like just went off off the airwaves almost it was just yeah. like such a culture for new music that like oftentimes the old stuff got completely overlooked do you think a little bit you were a, a product of that absolutely i think i was a product of that in a way i think it's just you know in the same way you don't, in the same way I was saying earlier, you don't know until somebody shows you. It's like, all I knew was going to a black market or going to Phonica every week and what was on the shelves was what I bought. You know, same thing when I was buying records in Wales, whether it was, you know, a bloody a Bob Sinclair bootleg or something or whatever it was. I was, you know, it was just, it was whatever was in the record store. And I hadn't really heard, although I'd heard DJs play before, and I'm sure that, you know, when I'd heard Master were playing Ibiza or Roger Sanchez or Clive Henry, they were playing old records as well. But I hadn't heard it done in that way. And because these were sounded really old, you know, they were crackly. And <laughs> and I just, you know, it, it was, that's why I say it's, it's, I've heard, you know, I can probably name my top four or five DJ sets I've heard in my life. And, but that one changed the way I thought about DJing and what I could do with it and how to do it yeah so right around the time it was like the start of 2006 you released Amazon which was your was your first track you released is that right yeah that was yeah, my was. first release yeah I wonder if you could kind of tell us about the development in terms of your like studio development that led up to that point like was that track a long time coming would you say I mean the first music I ever made was it was funny I was speaking about this with my little cousin then because he wants to be a game designer and we were, I asked him what his favorite console was. And he said the PS1. And I said, oh, that, you know, that's, I think I played Super Mario Kart on the, no, Mario on the Nintendo one, Super Mario Kart on the Nintendo SNES, Super Nintendo, and then PlayStation 1, I had Tomb Raider. I completed that. And the next game I bought was a game called Music 2000, which was just a very basic sequencer. You know, you'd have pad kicks, drums, little snare hits. And, 
I was hooked on it, literally. I almost failed my A-levels. I was, was doing it every night, making these little tunes. You had a three second sampler from a CD that you put in. And I remember playing those, playing those tunes. I even remember, I think I played one of the tunes I made on my PlayStation in Ibiza once, in many years before I was playing in proper clothes, uh, in, in Pin Up, this club called Pin Up once. But yeah, I'd got hooked on making music then. I never, I've never played a video game since, you know, even to this day where I still haven't literally played another video game for six for well, I guess you minutes. think well, I could be doing this instead well I just I just saw it as as more fun to me than making music was you know now even though now it's my career and my job it's still you know I'd rather be going and, and playing about listening to loops but you know at that point I never had my own computer I used to I borrowed my friend's laptop and I, had, I installed reason on it when I even when I was in uni and when I was uh, here it moved first moved to East London on Kingston Road and I had Reason and I'd made hundreds of tunes on Reason and I just couldn't get it to sound right. Played things in people's car and nothing ever sounded right. Yeah, I put on my first ever parties in London called DJs Can Dance, which were a warehouse party in uh, just off Brick Lane. It was the first time I'd ever made some proper money. So I bought myself a, a little 12 inch MacBook, I got Logic. And that was the first time I, the first tune I made on Logic was Amazon. And and it was, I played it to Danganasia and Ibiza and, he liked it. <laughs> do you think there was like a particular mood you were going for with like your early releases? Do you think you were kind of writing with like particular dance floors or clubs or DJs in mind? No, I, I can tell you that the, as far as Ricardo Lobos being the DJ that influenced me the most at one particular time that, that put me in a certain way with DJing, Matthew Johnson was the person who influenced me as a producer, you know, the most, you know, his melodies and the way, he, what he did at a particular time just was was so I was so into it and Amazon was kind of my kind of take on that it was it was the it was you know dark melodic but kind of you know kind of minimal sounding but yeah that's how Amazon came I was influenced by Matthew Johnson mm, I, I can I can sort of see that now you said it yeah exactly so you know and then that that set me on that on that kind of path yeah if you think about maybe some of your more recent productions and the stuff you were doing in the early days, do you see kind of a through line between them? Do you see sort of like commonalities? Do you think you've like maintained sort of certain approaches down the years? Yeah, totally. I mean, if you look at Amazon, for example, even though it's got like, you know, heavily reverbed and so kind of like minor chord pianos and stuff like that, it's still got the bass line still like do do do. Dun, 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 you know, which is not Matthew Johnson. He it was more. He kind of was, but it was more. I've always kind of like had an underlying chuggy groove to all my all my records, and I think that still comes through now. You know, it's, I think the underlying groove is similar. I mean, people can say it's changed or it hasn't changed or whatever, but and people still always, you know, even my friends, people I work with, you know, if a records play, they always say, this, "Is this you?" And then people can always seem to tell that it's me. So. So thinking about the time around when you released your album, you know, on the subject of this kind of bass sound, if you like, it seemed as though there were people who were being influenced by you now. You know, you were talking about some of your influences. Mm. Was this something that kind of quickly became apparent to you? That you were like, shit, I've got this sound and maybe people are now influenced by me. But I never thought about it until... It was other people who came kind of showed me first because we you know we we started the label, and then obviously you start getting demos and that and then of that vibe, and I didn't really think about it until it became the point where there was people making really bad versions of it, and then I was like, you know, because a good record to me is a good record, even if somebody's been influenced, copied, whatever, you know. I mean, obviously the the original version of it is always more usually the most interesting the original person because you know something that we crave as humans is originality but you know even if it's a good copy or a, you know a good something that's influenced it's still good but it's when people start making bad versions of things that's when you kind of realize hang on that's like that's like my kind of bass groove that's probably like the synth that i use the same juno or the same plugin but it's like got some really bad vibes <laughs> so when thinking about starting the label were there ideas that you kind of wanted to bring together for it was the like you know what was the kind of aim when you were starting out would you say you know it's one thing i've never ever done is really think too much about what i'm doing a few people ask me like oh did you ever think you know you'd be in this position or blah blah, blah. and i honestly hand on my heart can say i never have like i've never thought about how much DJ fees I would could get or how many festivals I could play or whether I would ever play a festival. 
I've always just like just done things and same with the label when we started it we, you know it, we just literally had some tunes that we, that we thought were good enough to put out produced our own stuff and just went with you know what I was feeling at the time what I wanted to hear at the time and what I thought would work and on a label at the time so um, when you're saying we I assume you're uh, referring to Lee yeah to Lee yeah. Uh, how did you guys meet? we met in Ibiza in 2001 it was his first season my second yeah we were just you know i remember it was funny i was saying this story the other day again to someone and it wasn't me that met lee first it was my people in my team now dion an old friend of mine i think they met him first in dc10 and all i remember is them saying oh that's lee the american guy because there wasn't any americans in Ibiza then hardly any it was a real novelty so um you know he would be there and he kind of like starting to meet people and he was cool he was funny quirky definitely but i remember he had this weird dance move in dc10 he'll deny this but i got photo of it in my brain he used to wear like this one kind of cut off fingered glove and he used to do this like one hand dance move where he'd point in different directions with his finger and this glove i just remember that so vividly because by then you could see everyone there was not many people in dc10 there's only a few hundred people in there and uh, yeah, so that was kind of my first memories of Lee, and we we became friends because we you know we had similar taste in music. We'd, we'd like the same records that were out and stuff like that. Yeah, we became friends. Thinking about the development of the label a little bit, you guys seem to develop like an uncanny knack for sniffing out like big records. You know, records that were going to really move yeah. the dance floor. But like, what would you put this down to? I assume you weren't actively seeking them out, but you definitely had an ear for them. It seemed. Yeah, I think that. I mean, if you look at some of the stuff from the beginning, it wasn't necessarily going to be big records. Like, well, the first record was Ruckus. It was. It just became, which was mine, which was just because you know after hearing really stripped back, you know, minimal techno for. Of quite a few years in clubs I was really just searching for a different angle on for my own listening pleasure and so I started being influenced by a lot more of the, what was going on in London the disco side of things etc and that was a reflection of that and the most important thing is I wanted the label is for it to be rather than tracks songs you know records that you would go home at the end of the night or something in them that you could go to your mate like Oh yeah, you know, remember that track that went like da 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 or something. You know, you could sing, you could hum it, you could sing it, whether it was a little vocal in it, whatever. Something that was memorable, because there's amazing music out there. Just tracks, I play them. No, I'm not saying I'm playing amazing music, but you know, there's just track music that's brilliant that's out there. But you know, it's something that in a record that can stand out and stay in people's memories and they'll remember it. That's kind of what we try and do with the label. Yeah, and I guess on a personal level, you had a couple of uh, big tracks around that time thinking about like the Azorian third remix and tracks like Summertime is the popularity of these records always a good thing like I mean does it ever become problematic where you feel like maybe you're being just known for a certain thing I mean obviously these things are great for boosting your profile but yeah. like does it come with its drawbacks of course you know it's like as soon as you remove the problem of having to pay your rent and a whole bunch of this more money, more problems kind of thing, you know. It's it's one of those, but it's it, it's not problems. It's it's just part of the story. I think that you know, if you have big records, yeah, it was probably the toughest time for me. And my whole career was actually after that year where I had Hungry for the Power out. I got number one on RA, and it was a really tough six months after that, adjusting to, you know, having a certain kind of fan in a positive way that only wants to hear that song or has only come to see you because you're number one in RA and also having the negative side of things where anyone who did, probably didn't really like your music in the first place all of a sudden because you're this big or you've had this you know thing that's happened to you is looking at you and going well I didn't really like it before but now you know everyone else is talking about it so I'm going to be vocal about the fact that I don't like it to everyone and it's just you know it's just it was a whole mad mad world but I, for me it's the same as when you're walking you know nowadays it's tough for me to go on a dance floor all I want to do in DC 10 is go out and listen to some DJs playing have a little rave with my friends and you know have that moment of half an hour like I had listening to Ricardo Villalobos when no one speaks but, you know, it's tough these days because, you know, people like, like your music and they want to be nice. They see you, might, they might not ever get to see you again or, or be that close to you on the dance floor or have the opportunity to tell you that they like your music, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, nowadays with social media, take that picture. And for me, 
the position that I'm in and the things that I've been given in life and the life that I've been given, you know, for me to sacrifice that is nothing. You know, I'll always say, let people take a picture or unless I'm in the right state. But, um, you know, I think that that's something you owe to people because they've put you there and I've had a good few years raving and, and listening to that and I can always go home and put a tune on and have that moment on my own. So, you know, it's sacrifices you must make, I think. I mean, it must be kind of mind-blowing in a way, you know, if you this is something you're reflecting on with, with your peers and other people who have, like, attained success that, I mean, in no way, I'm guessing, would you have considered the idea that you'd have to, like, encounter this celebrity status. You know, it's like if you're in films or, you know, you're in pop music or something, I guess this is something that you're, like, warmed up to the idea of. But in this, I, I guess you're just not thinking about it. It must just really throw you through a loop, this idea that, like, yeah, I am a really recognisable face and people will want a piece of me sort of thing. It is the weirdest thing ever, honestly. Like, being in a dance floor, being somewhere, or having people stop you in the streets in, in cities, you know, especially in London and places, and just like, or driving my car, and somebody will catch an eye on me driving my car, and they'll be like, tap the car, hey, Jay Jones. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? The, the weirdest part is being in a club and... Not everyone kind of, everyone kind of staring, but people just trying to take pictures of you on the sly. That's something I find so bizarre. Like I'll literally be dancing with my friend or chatting to someone and all of a sudden I'll catch somebody with their phone up and they're just taking a picture of me. I'm like, what, really? Like, <laughs> you know? Do you usually confront them over a, it or what would you? Yeah, when, when someone does that, we're like, come on, you know? It's like, it's like or on a plane, Ibiza a couple of years ago even, and I was with a friend and, I'd put like, I was obviously sat on the plane and people coming on and saying, oh, hey, James, blah, blah, I would just call. And then, so I'd put a, a top of my head or a cap of my head like this, cover my face and fallen asleep. And uh, my friend who was with me sat next to me, had gone up to go to the bathroom. When they came back, they found that somebody had come over to the seat whilst they were gone, lifted the top off my face and were trying to take a picture of me whilst I was sleeping. <laughs> and they went my obviously my friend went mental woke me up and be like what are you doing you it's like come on the lack of privacy sometimes is is a bit much you know and I, i'm speaking here like as if i'm brad pitt or something I, you know which i definitely am not i can't even imagine being an actual celebrity that would be yeah i mean you're saying nightmare. that though but i mean if you for example if you walked from here up just like kings and road or something or like mm. you know kings and high street there'll be no doubt that someone would recognize you but you know it's a daily thing i'd imagine yeah it's one of those it's weird and it's like you know everyone's nice almost i can't even say 99 because it's probably more than that of people are nice and they just want to sh you know tell you that you know that this, this record did to them or or how much you know they've come to see you in the last year or whatever it's all nice it's just i am a private person so it's just odd but like i was saying earlier it's just weird more than anything now i'm used to it and it's and it's fine but you know when i first started i had no idea that i didn't even think you could get the only person who was kind of like that back then and to be fair, is my who I respect the most as a person in this industry by far is Carl Cox because when there was no superstar DJs, when there was no social media, people were flashing pictures of him at every occasion just because he, you know, he expels this amazing personality. I only got to know him in the last couple of years and he's still like the most down to earth, humble and amazing person and he's a real example. You know, I see some DJs like, no, photo die, you know, I'm getting pissed off because some kids who are their fans, you know, want to shake their hand or something. It's like, to me, it's just it's so disrespectful to, to the people who love your music. And when you, especially when you see you know, someone like Carl Cox being so nice, if he's got the time to do it, trust me, they have. Mm. And been doing it for 30 years. Exactly, <laughs> you know. Do you feel in a way the sort of success you had, or sort of the early success you had, you were talking about like around 2011, almost gave you like the creative breathing space to start something like the Hot Natured project? Yeah, I mean, Hot Natured had been going on for a little while before, just Lee and I producing records and together. My goal has always been to bring what I considered, you know, quality music i'm not saying it, it ever has been or ever will be the most underground cutting edge weird stuff you know it's not edm it's not big obvious you know things so to, for me to be able to bring what i consider good music that's deep that's, that has definitely got an underground element to it 
to most of the world would be considered underground and to bring it to as many people as possible. And doing that by songs like Hungry for the Power and Forward Motion and Benediction, what that allows is for me then to have an outlet as Hot Natured to continue doing that and to continue to make songs that people sing along to. But then as Jamie Jones, which people recognize, you know, as, as somebody they'll be paying interest to when a record comes out, I can then push things back to being more and around and push. So, you know, there's always got to be a gay way. If you look at, you know, the Beatles, I'm not comparing obviously, but the big songs, all you need is love and all that kind of things. But then later on, they were putting, nine minute long sitar music was number one in the American charts, you know? And I kind of, I hope that's kind of what could happen now. We've already seen it a little bit in the UK, you know, in America, EDM is still in the top 10, but here it's like, you know, the word deep house, but you know, it's it, it's house music that's, that isn't super fast, that isn't got huge synths in it. You know, Route 94 thing, for example, obviously it's it was number one, but, for that to be in the charts, I think it's a good thing, you know, for for for, for the UK. It's a good yeah, representation. Yeah, almost rather that than some of the other stuff. Exactly, that, yeah, yeah. you know, you'd rather, would, what would you rather have, number one, that song or David Guetta or something, you know? It's like... I guess the project, you know, thinking about it overall was just kind of just an extension of the stuff that you were doing anyway. Like if you had sampled vocals, you maybe get a vocalist in. If you're yeah. using disco elements, you know, you wanted to do something more live. Exactly. You know, did you kind of see it that way? Absolutely, absolutely. I think I just became interested in writing songs and fusing it with house music, you know, and that that was the goal with Hot Natured was really just to use typical strong structures and, you know, chorus, bridge, verses and just infuse it with house music because we're you know i'm a house head you know and that's the kind of music i want to make so but just to be able to you know just start to play it live and and and, and etc was 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 great now how was that experience for you of playing live it was brilliant it was so it's so different like you know going to dj i've been doing it like for so so many years you know and you turn up with your vinyls or your usb sticks whatever and it's just you're in the moment you're playing records and you've got everything you've got as long as you're prepared and you've got enough records you can go anywhere you can do anything that's comfortable playing live there's so many things to think about you know not only am i playing bass lines live i'm operating what song's coming on next beat samples it's 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 so for that hour it's super intense just pure concentration it's like being in a really tight three track mix for an hour solid you know that's a nice that's, analogy actually. That's, that's the only way i can that's the only way i can think of describing it so it's a really cool challenge but just seeing as well seeing going around the world we just did a tour of brazil and you know for the first time with the band and our first gig in america it was in this really cool kind of hipster festival in miami called three points it was really cool just to see people you know sing along to the words and I've always been a fan of live music. I love seeing DJs, but you want to go and see someone like Bjork or, you know, recently when I saw Arcade Fire in Glastonbury or, you know, when I saw Michael Jackson when I was eight years old in, in 1988, it's like when somebody's on stage live and there's a show, it's it's a whole other world. You know, when we were doing that on our own little way and hopefully we'll we'll get to, to grow that, but it's such an experience. I mean, did you feel like you were maybe pulling people into this scene that maybe hadn't had experience of house music before, you know, do you feel like you were pulling in first timers? Cause you know, you did having this accessible element kind of thing. Definitely. I mean, you know, I know for a fact because I hear people all come up to me all the time around the world saying, you know, like, you know, you, you got me into house music before I was into something else, whether it was, whether it was another form of electronic music like trance or, or, you know, EDM or even, even indie kids now, you know, it was cool in, in, in America, uh, the perception of music is so different over there. Like over there, Hot Nature, for example, is way more of an indie kind of thing. You know, it's much, way more hipstery. It's, it's because the music is, is new there. We've got a history of house and everything over here, but over there, so obviously they've got a history of house, but to the kids, their no, history of houses and it's nothing, yeah. it's nothing to do with them. They don't really associate themselves with Chicago or, or Detroit or anything like that. It's new. It's you know, in most cities. It's a, it's, it's a new thing for them. So, so yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about your um, DJing because obviously it's something you've been doing for quite a long time now. Do you feel as though like the kind of basic ideas of your craft have sort of remained in place over the years. I mean, do you think that your your style or your approach has kind of changed much as you've kind of gone along? Yes, I think that 
I've always been a party DJ, you know, like that, that's been my thing, you know, and the longer sets I play, actually more than enough, and a party DJ, I'm in my element in after parties, you know, so I kind of try to bring my after party kind of sound to peak time. And I guess that's what comes through in, in the records that we release on the label. And, you know, when you hear my my sets, technically, I'm always learning. It, honestly, I, I it's so surprising to me how much you still learn after being mixing for, what is it now, 19 years. You know, you still learn little, even the subtlest of things of like EQing records well and stuff like that. You know, and you hear people like, examples like Sasha or you know Michael Kroller or, or Jeff Mills the way that they mix records you know that they've been doing it a long time because it's the same way as making music where you, your ear gets trained into EQing no one in the world can walk in and their first week in Ableton or Logic or whatever get a really good mix out of, out of a kick drum and a hi-hat and a bass and it's the same thing with his DJ after years of doing it mixing in clubs your ear just becomes trained to how far to turn the high into the next record and how much to cut the bass off, et cetera, et cetera. That's what's great about DJing. You're always learning like that. Which is kind of amazing when you think about what this, you know, what it actually entails. Yeah, totally. I mean, that, something that you look at and think, I mean, I learned from a, a BBC thing <laughs> back in the day, how to do it. And just to think how nothing's really changed. It's still two turntables and, you know, whether it's CDJs now or whatever, it's still just blending two pieces of music together, three pieces of music together. But the detail of how to do it right is so subtle, but so effective. It's, it's really amazing. Obviously, you've been a incredibly busy touring DJ for a number of years now. I was really wondering, does it ever feel or get to feel like a bit of a chore at times? You know, you're obviously going places that you maybe would never imagine you would even get to go to, you know, places in the States and mm. big festivals. Just even as a result of the sheer volume of gigs, does it ever feel kind of a bit laborious or a bit of a chore? Oh, absolutely. You know, any DJ who tells you otherwise is lying, you know. I think Kerry Chandler said to someone, a close friend of mine, not so long ago, he said, you know, no one's paying me to DJ. I love DJing. They pay me to travel and to spend half of your life or not half your life, but a massive portion of your life just traveling from place to place is quite tedious. Even if you're doing it, obviously the, the more popular you get and higher profile you get, the, you know, the more first class tickets and private jets there are, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still... It's not even the traveling part of it. I actually don't mind sitting on a, on a plane, even if it's, in, you know, whatever situation it is. It's more, not being in the same place for very long. You know, it's being literally every two, three days, getting up and going. And just when you're getting into the swing of a city or, you know, a house or an apartment or even a hotel, you've got to go again. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've always got it in the back of your mind that you have to get whatever you need to get, get done in that place in those two days because you're going if you need to go to the bank, you need to have lunch with someone, you need to go for a meeting, it's all got to be done on a very tight schedule because you've got to go in three days. That's the hardest part of it. Once I'm in a gig, it's fine. doesn't matter if there's five people there or, you know, 15,000. I'm always happy and I can always have fun. But yeah, it's just just the bits in between. It's, it's tough. What's the sort of longest period of time you would ever get to spend in any one place? Um, do you manage to block out like a couple of weeks I in do. London? I do. Nowadays, I, I spend a portion of the year in LA. So I, I go there January, just after the BPM Festival in Mexico. I go there and I spend a good two months. I might pop and go like snowboarding for a few days or stuff like that. But I tend to take like one or two gigs in that time and really just, you know, have a studio there and make music do normal things, wake up, go to the gym, have, go and play tennis with some friends, you know, stuff like that. I just don't have time to do the rest of the year because it's just bam, 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 you know. So Now, what's the cumulative effect of that? I mean, do you ever feel like you're, you know, this idea of burnout or something? Do you ever think you come close to that or experience symptoms of that? I've been doing this a while now, so I've been on this schedule for quite a few years and I pick things up off people. One of the main game changers for me was was the way I eat you know eating well and healthy is key if you you cannot do this if you're eating 
burgers and chips every day you know it's impossible so yeah i changed my diet i'm I'm a pescatarian nowadays and i just i don't have as much time as i'd like to exercise but that just you know trying to eat well and 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 keep my health up now i don't ever get i never have colds i used to just get in the winter or autumn i'd get constant sniffles constant colds now that never happens to me and i'm I'm almost certain i'm older so it should be you know but it's, it's definitely the way i eat so I guess one of the stable things in your life is the DC 10 residency paradise that you have in the summer. So this year, I guess, was a really successful year for you. You opened the second room of the party like quite early on in the mm. summer. I mean, do you reflect on summer 2014 as like a front to back successful year or the things that you would want to improve for next year? And like, are you going back for next year? Oh, absolutely going back. You know, it was our third year. Yeah, like you said, we, we were supposed to do five whole club takeovers and we ended up the week we were supposed to go back in mid-August to just the one room, I got a call, I think it was from our boiler room, saying, listen, there's too many people here, we're going to have to open both rooms, and we just stayed open. So instead of doing five, we did 10 out of 13, or 11 out of 13, I think. So, you know, it's it's gone from strength to strength, and even though I consider every year that we've done it a success, this year was, you know, the growth was a lot more than I was even hoping for. And it's great because it's been a competitive market out there. You know, a lot of people started parties at the same time um, from our world. And, you know, there's only been a couple, two or three that have really co have come through. And, and and they've also come through to be some of the pop most popular nights on the island. And having two rooms now, what that allows me to be able to do is now, you know, we've already started booking people for next summer, is to really bring people who I couldn't bring before because they don't, bring so many people to the club but I love their music and you know with one room you only have a space for three or four DJs you know, and I've got a lot of residents a lot of guys on the label that are great so now two rooms I can really we're not looking to book any more big names or big draws now every additional DJ we add can be someone really cool and interesting who doesn't get to play in Ibiza so often and that we really like to hear their music so it must be like a nice byproduct of the success you've had over the yeah no I had no idea we're running a night and I bet you thought would entail. I thought, yeah, you know, book some DJs, get someone to do production, do some artwork, easy. The first year, I was finishing the Hot Natured album. It was the first year of Paradise, uh, obviously the label and touring. So I was literally, we decided on a Thursday, then moved it to Wednesday, so the first year was a Thursday. So I'd have Paradise on the Thursday, leave on Friday, do a little after party with some friends, leave on Friday, go and do Friday, Saturday, Sunday night gigs around Europe or whatever. Monday, I'd be back in London, I'd be in the studio in West London, Hot Natured, Monday till Thursday morning, finish early Thursday, and then fly to Ibiza and do Paradise again. That was my summer. On top of just meeting uh, my girlfriend who I'm still with, it was the first year we were together, it was like intense. We were talking earlier about feeling uh, the pressure or, or burning out. That summer almost killed me. <laughs> I was on the brink of the certain death at certain points during that summer. <laughs> yeah. To think about the club, DC10, like as someone who's been going for, I guess, over 10 years now, do you see like a connection to the early days? And do you think the spirit of like the early days has kind of like remained intact or is it like a completely different thing these days? It's a good question and it's something I think a lot of people talk about. I really hate when people go oh it's not like it used to be you know i know how it used to be i was in dc 10 when it was a free party and it was mud all over the floor decks were on you know milk crates it was, it was very basic and i loved it don't get me wrong but if you're going to ibiza now for the first time as a 18 year old kid and you're going to dc 10 you're having the time of your life it's no you're not having any less fun than i was back then it was different i know the difference i prefer the old days of course because you know, I was younger, <laughs> I was all new to me, but I still, especially someone like DC10, you still catch the energy of the place, you know, even when it's really packed and et cetera, et cetera, I, you still walk away, you know, and you experience that. And that's why they've had such a success story. And Ibiza, you know, is the same, it, you know, there's things have changed, there's, you know, motorways going through it, a lot of the, um, you know, the EDMs going on and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if you're on DC 10 Terrace or if you're on, you know, on a Friday or Saturday morning on in Amnesia Terrace, you can really feel 
why people keep going back and spending half their year's earnings <laughs> on a holiday there because it has got something that you do not find anywhere else in the world. I'm sorry. And like, I might not have been to everywhere, but I've been to pretty much most places that anyone could compare to being like Ibiza as far as, you know, lots of DJs go there, party people, clubs, what have you. And nowhere, nowhere still comes close to it to me. So what's coming up for you? lot of solo music I've been working on the last few months and yeah just quite a few releases a couple of my labels some on some other people's labels lots of remixes I've just now got to do my third day in this week with Hot Natured in my studio on writing so we've actually after a bit of a slow start the first day we've actually come together with two or three new songs which are sounding really cool well they were last night at 2am <laughs> and yeah just lots of production Paradise going around the world doing tours. You know, we were lucky to do stages at some festivals like Tomorrowlands and, you know, we did yeah, loads of festival stages, but we're also moving into um, doing some produced events. One in New York in a really amazing place that I don't think anyone's done a party before and just things like that. Just, you know, growing all, all the entities and just keep pushing them and try not to make too many solid plans, but just to kind of go with the flow and an opportunity comes up to do something cool, do it. <laughs> Burns.